Well, we are in week eight of our Purple Faith series. My notebook is getting full. Last week, we were talking about idols and being citizens of God's kingdom, putting loyalty to God's kingdom first over loyalty to other, other ideologies, other systems. I feel like that was a, one of the, probably one of the more pertinent messages of this series that we've gone through that pertains to what we're doing right now in the world and, and the issues we're facing, as does tonight. Um, so if you missed out on last week, I encourage you to go check that out and, uh, and get caught up. And then I had to finish it on Tuesday night, as I probably will this week have to finish this on Tuesday evening at 6.30 on Facebook is when I'm doing that, if you want to come join me. been doing 6.30s on Tuesday evenings the last uh, three or four weeks. So it was, we talked a lot about idolatry and what mo- modern-day idolatry is and how we're prone to, to worshiping things other than God and the importance of becoming like God and, the, and what worship does when we worship other things, we become like the, whatever it is we're worshiping. And uh, talked about a, a verse from Second Kings where, where Israel was worshiping idols. And the quote is, they worshiped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. So we become like what we worship. So we have to pay attention to what's, what's consuming our attention, our affection, and our ambition. And if we're being consumed by something other than God, if something other than God is driving us, if something other than God is what we want most in life, something other than God is what we love most in life, then we're in danger of worshiping idols. We've been kind of tracking through Israel's story in the Old Testament and tracking through the human story throughout the Old Testament Idolatry was what ultimately brought, uh, brought the, the need for the exile in, in Israel. So because Israel refused to worship God alone and they were constantly turning themselves over to worshiping idols, God decided he was going to kick them out of the land that they, were, that they had been promised and living in for a uh, thousand years. And, but then... What that, that, that brought about the need again for redemption. Which brings us to the part of the story we're probably most familiar with, which is Jesus and Easter and the cross and the resurrection and grace. The term would be grace. We talk about the gospel, but, but it's grace. And I want to get into grace and forgiveness tonight. And, and the role that plays in purple faith. Our agreement is agreement number five. As a recipient of God's irrational grace in Jesus, I will seek to be irrational in showing grace to others. As a recipient of God's irrational grace in Jesus, I will seek to be irrational in showing grace to others. So that's the, that's the agreement, and then this is kind of the, the, uh, the subtext of that agreement. I will be the first to forgive, extending the generous grace of Jesus that I have received to those around me. It doesn't matter if they deserve my forgiveness, because I didn't deserve God's forgiveness when he gave it to me. 
All of me has been redeemed, heart, mind, body, not just my soul. I have been bought with a price, therefore I cannot do whatever I want with my body. Because Jesus is the word that proceeds from the mouth of God, the words I speak will be words of life and not death. Because I have experienced God's redemption firsthand, I believe in redemption in all things. I believe in redemption for others and redemption for our world. I will forgive as I have been forgiven. So that's the big, that's kind of the big meat of the agreement we're going to get into tonight. And, and just like the Israelites, all of us at some point in our lives have been given to some kind of idol worship. We've put something ahead of God. That was kind of our, our sub-definition for idolatry is when we, make, when we make anything that's good ultimate. If we take something that God created for our good but make it the ultimate thing in our lives, we're, we're falling into idolatry or at least the territory of idolatry. And when we fall into those things, typically for most of us throughout most of our lives, our idolatry is ourselves. We're driven by what we want. We're driven by what we, what we want to have happen in our lives, what we want to pursue, the, the needs and desires and wants and all those things tend to consume all of our attention, and we become idol worshipers, but we're worshiping us as opposed to worshiping God. But when we fall into that, then we need redemption. We need, we need someone to come and redeem us because we, we can't redeem ourselves. We've already sinned. We've already fallen short of God's glory. Therefore, because we have sinned, we cannot pay for our own sin and at the same time redeem ourselves or set ourselves free from the consequences of that sin. So we needed a redeemer. We needed a ransomer to come in and pay the price for us that we could not pay for ourselves. And that's what Jesus did. And a huge function of that redemption is forgiveness, which is the focus of the cross, that Jesus paid the price on the cross for our sins that we deserved to pay because of our rebellion against God. But Jesus took our sin on, our, on himself. The, the Apostle Paul said that he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. So Jesus Christ took on our sin, and the sinless one became sin, and then he died under the burden, under the weight, and under the wrath that we deserved for our sin. And then he set us free from the law of sin and death or the bondage of sin and death so that we might actually be resurrected to a new life in Christ. That's a redemptive work that we cannot do for ourselves. And last week, like we talked about, as priests, now we are all a royal priesthood in Christianity. Every single one of us who are followers of Jesus Christ have become priests, which means we are representatives of God to the people. <coughs> Excuse me. So a big part of our function, our role, is to take God and represent God, be representatives, or as Paul would say, ambassadors to the people in the world around us who do not have access to God because they're separated from God because of their sin. They have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, so they, have not, they do not yet have the ability to come to God. So we take God to them, and through us, God brings people into the kingdom of God, and then he restores them, and now they join in the royal priesthood as they've been redeemed. Forgiveness, though, is, the, is a huge part of that because we, 
rebelled against God. We did things our own way. It's as though I've said many times, and I know probably makes some of you cringe, but we give God the finger and we say, we're going to do it my way. I'm going to do life my way. This is my life. I'm going to do with it what I want. And we don't go God's way. And so we've sinned against God in that rebellion. Now we have to be forgiven so that we can be brought in to the Holy of Holies and we can live in that relationship God designed us to live in in the beginning where he would be our God and we would be his people. So we're in the redemptive part of that story tonight. We're, we're looking now at the idea of forgiveness. I've got a clip that I'd actually like to start things off with tonight. It was from an interview on NPR, and uh, we'll just let you listen to that and go from there. We probably all remember that story. That's one that I remember uh, vividly, and what stood out to me, which sent me looking for for interviews was seeing on social media days after that shooting that that they were preaching on forgiveness that they were they were praying and talking about forgiveness because it's not often that that's the way it goes so many times in those situations the the response is vengeance the response is we need to we need to find who did this we need to make it you know we need to make it right and they need to pay but for Emmanuel, it was forgiveness. And that message of forgiveness was one that wasn't just immediate. It's one that carried through their whole journey while they're dealing with the pain and heartache of someone coming in and doing a horrific thing like that. There's more to that story. We'll finish up the clip at the end so you can hear what happened as a result of their forgiveness. I'm going to go to Luke chapter 15, verse 11, the story of the prodigal son. If you have your Bibles, you're welcome to open up to Luke 15. We'll spend most of our time there tonight. Definitely have some other scriptures we're going to bring into our discussion Luke chapter 15, verse 11, and Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything... A severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. 
I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field and he came and drew near to the house. He heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. You never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you're always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There's too much here for us to unpack in one evening. There's a great book, a, a, a remarkable book. It's one of my top 12 books that I recommend that everyone read. It's by Timothy Keller, Dr. Tim Keller. And um, he, the title of the book is called Prodigal God. If you really want to get into everything that is in the story and how deep it, it actually is, I would encourage you to go get that book and read it. It's, it's, worth, it's worth your time. It's one of those books I think you'll probably read over and over again. You'll highlight it and underline things. And every time you go back through it, you'll see something else. It's just an inspired book. But there, is, there are some things I do want to note that happened here. First, with the older brother, it's easy to kind of look at the older brother and his response and get down on him, and we're going to try to explain some of that and really see what was going on. But we have to understand what happened. So the, the son goes to the father, the younger son that leaves. First, the word prodigal means spendthrift or extravagant spender. So the word prodigal doesn't mean lost, like we tend to think it does, because we're talking about the lost son or the lost sons. But the word prodigal itself actually means spendthrift or, or you know, extravagant spender. So the son spends everything. That's why he's the prodigal son. But what happened? So this, the younger son demanded that he be able to take his money out of the family estate, 
which meant they had to liquid, you know, they had to get, you know, assets in liquid form so he could give them to him. So, so they had to probably, most likely, sell off pieces of the estate in order to fund the younger son's demands, which then means that the estate for the father and the older son is smaller. Then the younger son comes back, and the father reinstates him as a son into the house, which means for the older son that now his share that he had is going to be smaller unless they negotiate something with the younger son to, to balance things out because now he's brought back in to son and he's going to be able to receive from, from the estate down the road again. So he gets to double dip. So it seems, it seems easy to look at the older son and see why he would be so frustrated. It's not fair. That's not right. It shouldn't be that way. And especially since he squandered it the way he did. He just blew it all on fun living and partying and debauchery. But then he comes home. He comes to his senses and he comes back and realizes that even if he goes back to be a servant for his father, he's going to eat better than he is right now. So he goes back. And that phrase, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him. You may have heard this before. But in case you haven't, don't overlook the significance of the father running. Fathers did not run in this world, in this culture. Especially the more wealthy fathers would not run. The son would run to you, but you would not run because people were supposed to come to you. You don't go to them. But the father ran to his son when he saw him. And he saw him a long ways off, and he took off running for him and embraced him and kissed him. Then the older son does start to have some issues. Kind of sounds like he's just mad that the younger son gets this big party, and he didn't even get a little party through his whole life. And the younger son just complains, seems to be focused on the stuff, which we're going to talk about. Well, the father says, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. The younger son rebelled against the father and went off and lived in rebellion. The older son seems to be a you know, religious son. He kept all of the commands and demands of his father while the younger son disobeyed them and went off and did his own thing. Keller in the book, he says, Jesus uses the younger and the elder brothers to portray the two basic ways people try to find happiness and fulfillment, the way of moral conformity and the way of self-discovery. Moral conformity and self-discovery. Each acts as a lens, coloring how you see all of life, or as a paradigm shaping your understanding of everything. Each is a way of finding personal significance and worth, of addressing the ills of the world, and of determining right from wrong. Moral conformity, self-discovery, what I might say, rebellion and religion. Moral conformity would be religion, self-discovery, I would say, is rebellion. It's all rebellion of some form. But for both of the sons, what, what Jesus is pointing out, because 
because both of the sons made mistakes in the story. The younger son made a huge mistake, and we can see that mistake pretty easily. But Jesus fin finishes the story with the older son and the mistake that he makes, and he finishes the story without the older son receiving reconciliation to the father. And for many of us, that's a hard thing to look at because we look at what the younger son did and we see the wrong of it. And we look at the older son and say, well, but he, he did live right. He, he, did, he did do all the right things. He, he did all the father's commands. He, he lived up to the father's expectations. Why is he being punished? But for both of the sons, the father gives them each the opportunity to come in. For the younger son, he goes out, and then he invites the son back into the family. And then the older son, when, when he's outside the feast, he's outside the celebration, he's outside what is going on, and the father goes out and pleads with him, or this, this translation said, entreated him. His father came out and pleaded with him to come in and join the feast. But the older brother refused and stayed outside. Jesus is making a point with the two brothers. For both of them, their focus was in the wrong place. For both of them, they were focused on something other than the Father. They were focused on what they got from the Father not on the Father himself. And the truth is, if that is the point Jesus is making, we all need grace, we all need redemption, because we all have focused on what the Father gives us at times in our lives instead of focusing on God himself and knowing the Father. But like I said, it's easy for us to look at the lostness of the youngest son who squandered everything it's hard for us to be able to look at this, the younger son through the father's eyes and see the redemptive potential, even though the father could see it. The older brother could not see the redemptive potential. He thought the lost son did not deserve to be redeemed, to be restored into the family. The older brother thought that, that he deserved more than the lost son because the lost son had already cost the family so much. The older brother's upset with the younger brother. But the older brother is just focused on the stuff, and he's missing the point. The, the father says, Look, these, or the, the older brother says, Look, these many years I've served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours, it's not his brother, the son of yours, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Keller says, the elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of it. The elder brother is not losing the father's love in spite of his goodness, but because of his moral goodness. 
It is not his sins that create the barrier between him and the Father. It's the pride he has in his moral record that's creating the distance between him and his Father. It's not the older brother's wrongdoing, but his righteousness that's keeping him from sharing in the feast of the Father. Why is he so angry with the Father? It's because he feels, as the older brother, he has the right to tell the Father how to run the estate, how the rings and the robes and the livestock should be deployed. In the same way, religious people commonly live very moral lives, but their goal is to get leverage over God, to control him, to put him in a position where the thing he owes is them. Underneath the brothers' sharply different patterns of behavior is the same motivation and aim. Both are using the Father in different ways to get the things on which their hearts are actually fixed. It was the wealth, not the love of the Father, that they believed would make them happy and fulfilled. The Father's happiness had never been the older son's goal. Keller says this should probably be called the, the, the parable of the lost sons or the parable of, of the prodigal God, the God who spends extravagantly to get his sons back. These are two lost sons, two, two people who have gone away from their father just in different ways. And that phrase, I think, at the end, which is usually where the point is when Jesus is making a parable, when he's teaching a parable, the point that he's trying to make is usually at the end of the parable, he says, the father said to the older son, son, you are always with me and all that is mine is yours. You are always with me. This last week, uh, Jim and I were talking about John chapter 17 and Jesus' prayer where Jesus said that eternal life is not heaven, it's not getting in through the pearly gates and getting all the good things that lie in heaven, but eternal life is knowing the Father. That's what Jesus says is eternal life. Eternal life is knowing the Father. And you can see that when you start to look at that in Scripture. You can see that's how God wanted things to work all along. That's why we've put so much emphasis over the years on that phrase that, that God said that, that I would be their God and they would be my people. Because that, that's what eternal life is. That's what eternity is, is God dwelling with his people and being our Father. And that's the point Jesus is making. Son, you are always with me. What the older son had taken for granted his whole life was actually the blessing that he needed, which was his father. Not the father's stuff, but the father himself. Keller says, elder brothers obey God to get things. They don't obey God to get God himself in order to resemble him, love him, know him, and delight him. They obey God to get things. But Jesus comes and he's preaching this message, which is different. 
It's a very different message than what had been preached throughout the land at that point in time. The, the dominant message was, was religion. It was living a religious life. And, and, and there was the group of Pharisees which were trying to bring the priesthood into all of Israel's society and trying to encourage people to live up to the, to the expectations of priests, which came with, which brought with it a whole lot of religion a whole lot of moral mandates that we had to act and live in a certain way. But Jesus' message is different. His message is the gospel, and it presents a completely different spirituality. The gospel of Jesus is not religion or irreligion, morality or immorality, moralism or relativism, conservatism or liberalism, nor is it something halfway along a spectrum between two poles. It's something else altogether. This is Dr. Keller speaking. These are his words. So if you get offended, you can get mad at him. The gospel is different. It's distinct from the other two approaches. In its view, in, in the gospel's view, everyone is wrong. Everyone is loved. And everyone is called to recognize this and change. Everyone is loved, everyone is wrong, everyone is called to recognize this and change. By contrast, elder brothers divide the world in two. The good people like us are in, and the bad people, who are the real problem with the world, out there doing all that stuff, are out. That's what the older brothers do. Younger brothers do it differently. Even if they don't believe in God at all, they do the same thing. They say, no, the open-minded and tolerant people are in, and the bigoted, religious, narrow-minded people who are the real problem in the world are out. But Jesus says something entirely different. Jesus says the humble are in. And the proud are out. The humble are in, but the proud are out. Luke chapter 18, verse 14. Psalm 138, verse 6 says, The Lord cares for the humble, but keeps his distance from the proud. It's one of the reasons we were drawn to 6-8 as a name because of the the inclusion of the phrase, walk humbly with God. The Bible speaks often about, about pride and humility. Several times it's quoted that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we're talking about Jesus on the cross, it says that he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Even Jesus walked humbly. The gospel is about humility versus pride, not religion versus irreligion or all those other categories. So when the father looks at the lost son, the one who went off and squandered his wealth and then he comes back, what does he say? He says, he was dead and is now alive. He was lost and is now found. He was dead and is now, and now alive. He was lost and is now found. What the 
father saying, look, he's back in the family. The son is back, and, and now we're able to actually be in relationship with him again. He was gone. When he's gone, you can't have a relationship. When he's out squandering all the wealth, you cannot be in relationship with someone in that position. But he came back, and now he's back in relationship. He's back in the family. And with the younger son, we see the picture of what God wants to do, which is redemption. He, he wants to redeem us. We, we rebel on our own, whether it's through rebellion like the younger son or religion like the older son. We go off and do our own thing, and we get ourselves outside of God's kingdom and outside of God's family. Eventually, hopefully, we come to our senses and we come back to the Father and say, even if I'm a servant in your kingdom which is how Paul describes himself as a bondservant to the king, as a bondservant to Jesus himself. If I'm a servant in the kingdom, it's better than, than anything else out there in the world around. It's redemption. It's the son being redeemed, restored. The father could forgive the younger son, but why couldn't the older brother Why did the older brother have such a hard time with the younger son's redemption? Right? The father is able to look at the younger son and see the potential that lies in the younger son, but the older brother, all he can see is the potential loss of more of the estate. The father had what I would call irrational grace towards his son. Many of us would probably not react that way if somebody took a third of our estate and went off and squandered it in the way that the younger son did. We would not maybe be as favorable bringing the younger son back in. It's irrational for the father to act the way he did. It didn't make sense, and, and he would be looked down on by society for bringing the younger son back in the way that he did. But he brings him back in. It's, it's an irrational grace that the father has towards the son. The older son had rational vengeance toward his brother. It's logical when you look at what the older son is saying. His argument makes a whole lot of sense to us. He, he messed up. What are you doing? Which is why the word grace is so important. Mercy is when you don't get something that you deserve. Mercy is when you deserve punishment and you don't receive it. But grace is when you get something you don't deserve. It's when you get a great thing that you could do nothing to earn. There's no way we could deserve grace. There's nothing we can do to earn grace. Grace requires us to humble ourselves and recognize that there's nothing we can do to earn this, right? There's no self-actualization or no self-realization that will get us far enough if we're going to follow the path of the younger son. We, we cannot ascend any kind of ladder through self-actualization and self-realization to actually get to a point where we are in good standing with God. And we can't follow the path of the older brother, which is religion and living out a moral life in such a way that we can get to God good enough that way. There's no way to God, to God's paradise, to God's kingdom, to God's eternity, except for humility. 
The only way into God's kingdom is grace, and it's grace that we all need. Which means no matter what position we find ourselves in with any of these issues we've been talking about throughout this whole series, if we have pride in our position, we're in danger of being the older son and not forgiving. Isn't our pride in our position what makes us think that we are in and that those who disagree with us are out? Isn't it our pride in our position that keeps us from forgiving people who have offended our sacred values? Like with the church in Charleston, South Carolina, be easy to get offended and find yourself on one side of the fence or the other and and yet the, the church itself, the ones who had every reason to be offended, found themselves forgiving. What God could do with the Son in this story is something that God still wants to do today, and that's forgive. God wants to forgive all the prodigals who have squandered their position with God. God wants to forgive all of us who, who think we're, we're religious enough to, to be good enough on our own, and he wants to forgive us of that too. But even when the offense of prodigals doesn't offend us directly, we get offended and hold on to the offense in our current culture. Right? Even when, when we hear about stories like, like the church in Charleston, or we hear about stories at you know, places all across the country dealing with this issue and with other issues, and something happens and we find ourselves on one side of the story or one side of the fence or the other, we find ourselves, because our sacred values have been, have been offended, we find ourselves getting offended. We have a society-wide loss of grace. We just don't have any grace in our culture anymore. Anyone uh, that grew up in, in Christianity, do you remember boycotting Disney? Boycotting Disney? Do you remember it? It was just a Bible Belt thing, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I, it was probably in the 80s, maybe, maybe late 80s, early 90s. Um, and it was probably, my guess would be it was a focus on the family thing, although I'm not entirely certain where it came from. I'd have to do some research. But Disney had done something. They had created some kind of a movie or something that offended Christians and they said, well, we're going to boycott Disney. We're not, we're not going to support anything they're doing anymore. And obviously it was really effective because Disney took a big hit. You know, they're not a big dominant superpower in the world today or anything. <clears throat> but Christians and just humans have been doing what we call cancel culture for a long time. We see something that offends us and we think, well, we can't let that go on, so we've got to get it out of here. We've got to cancel it. 
Now we're seeing this on the other side. We're, we're seeing this both with, with conservatives and with progressives. This idea that, oh, somebody does something, and what they do offends my sacred values so deeply that now they have to be canceled. They cannot be allowed to go on anymore. This happened um, a few years ago. With the, um, we've got a new round of <coughs> Supreme Court confirmation hearings going on. And it's amazing how Supreme Court con- confirmation hearings just bring out the nastiest, ugliest part of, of our government. Um, but this was happening a couple years ago, and Lindsey Graham at that time was running the, uh, the hearing, and Diane, I think it's Diane Feinstein, was also sitting right next to, or a couple seats down from, from Lindsey Graham. And I just happened to see, I don't know if it was this clip or if I just happened to tune in at this time, but, but uh, Diane Feinstein gets into her microphone at the end of the hearings and she actually turns to Lindsey Graham and says, you know, thank you, thank you, Senator Graham. This has been a very respectful hearing. I thought you did a great job running this thing and uh, really appreciated how, how this whole thing went down. They finish the hearing and then uh, Lindsey Graham gets up and he walks down to uh, Senator Feinstein and they hug. And one's a Republican and one's a Democrat. And to me, I thought, well, that's a, that's a great, like, it's a great example of how the government could work if we just, if we worked that way. But then, all of the people who, who are adamantly opposed to Lindsey Graham and his point of view tried to cancel out Dianne Feinstein, call, you know, trying to do a recall election and get her kicked out just because, only because she hugged Lindsey Graham. There's an article you can go read if you want to go read, uh, read about that. But they were trying to cancel her because she was just kind to Lindsey Graham. We've got this societal loss of grace where when, not only when people do things that offend us, we feel like we've got to go after them, but when anyone that's on our side shows any kind of kindness or grace to someone on the other side, we've got to go after them too. We can't, we can't, you know, abide by any kind of polite, gracious treatment of one another when we're on opposite sides. Which also points out that we're, we're really easily offended today. Have you noticed that? Like, we're really easily offended in our world today? Like, we've just got this constant, you know, insecurity, and, and it just takes so little for someone to hit us the wrong way. Matthew chapter 18, verse 21, another great parable on the topic of forgiveness. Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And Peter thought that was a big number because, you know, once would have been sufficient for most cultures. And you know, if someone, if you forgive them once and they do the same thing to you again, well, you don't have to forgive them again. You can, you're justified to, to eradicate them from your lives. And so Peter's thinking probably that he's making, setting himself up to be a really righteous person seven times, and seven is a number of completion. Seven is a number of wholeness. Like when you say the word seven in Scripture, it just has this connotation that, well, seven times, that would be the whole complete forgiveness, right? It wouldn't go beyond that. And Jesus answered, 
I tell you not seven times, but 77 times, or 70 times seven. Jesus' point is not a number. His point is, uh, whatever you took, add a whole bunch to it. And he explains it with another parable. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like, and that would be a great study. If you ever want a good study, reading through Scripture, just go through the Gospels, and anytime Jesus uses that phrase, the kingdom of heaven is like, highlight it and underline it, and you'll get a, get a manifesto of what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like for us here on earth. Jesus says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. 10,000 bags of gold in this time would be trillions of dollars. Trillions of dollars. It's a debt that literally cannot be repaid. This man owes 10,000 bags of gold to the king. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. So they were going to take all their possessions, sell them off, and then the family were going to become servants and spend their lives trying to pay back the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him, canceled the debt, and let him go. Can you imagine? Somebody owes you trillions of dollars and you just cancel the debt? It is unthinkable. It's a lot of money. But when the servant went out, after having had his debt canceled, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. A hundred silver coins might be a couple of weeks' wages, maybe a month. fellow servant owes him hundred silver coins. He grabbed him and began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me! His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Does that sound familiar? That's what he had just said, right? But he refused. Instead, he went off, had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told their master, the king, everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus finishes it off. He says, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. So we've got this great story, this great illustration, and Jesus tells us the point. He doesn't always do that, but in these parables, he's told us the point. 
This is how Heavenly Father is going to treat you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. We've talked about this phrase a couple of times now throughout this series, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And, and we talked about how in the prayer, the Lord's prayer itself, Jesus prayed, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that we are representatives of God's kingdom. And as we worship God more and more, we're being shaped more and more into the likeness of Jesus Christ as we worship him, making us better representatives and better ambassadors of God's kingdom here on earth. We're supposed to be bringing that kingdom to earth, bringing the kingdom of heaven to earth itself, the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And according to Jesus, that kingdom, the kingdom of heaven that we're supposed to be bringing to the earth is like a king who canceled the massive debt of his servant. So the kingdom of heaven that we're not only supposed to be representing but actually bringing into fruition here in the earth is one that cancels massive debts. Why then do we go out and try to get back what we feel like we're owed. Honestly, the hard answer to that question is, is because we all want to be gods. We want to be rulers, like we've said already in this series. We want, to, we want to be the people who determine what is right and wrong. And when we talked about in the week on judgment, we don't just want to be able to determine what is right and wrong for us. We want the authority to judge over the world around us what is right and wrong and to institute our morality or our sacred values onto everyone around us because we didn't like what God said in the garden. We wanted to do our own thing and go our own way. Go our own way. So we want to get vengeance because still in us there is that twinge, that, 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 that rebellion that says, you know you're right. You deserve this. Get it. But that's not how it is in God's kingdom. Romans chapter 12, when Paul is talking to the church about being the church in Romans chapter 12, he starts off that passage with, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The verse right before that, what does he say? He says, sacrifice yourselves, offer yourselves of living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. This is your, please, your, your uh, reasonable act of worship. And then he goes through and he talks about loving one another in the church and how the church is a body and how the, how the church needs the, all the members of the body and without all the members of the body, the church can't function because we all belong to one another because we're all this house that God is building. And then he says, right after that, he says, do not repay anyone evil for, le for evil. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. And then to just give us just a little bit, you know, of motivation, Paul says, in doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. So there's a little bit of pleasure in what Paul tells us to do, right? 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The evils of the world around us are not going to be overcome as if we respond in kind. The only way to overcome evil is with good. The only way to overcome the evil all around us that we see, the, the offenses of the world around us, the, the offenses that, that we know are offensive to God is, as, as people live their own lives in glad rebellion. The only way to overcome that is with good. It is not by force. It's by grace. So vengeance really has no place in the kingdom of God. Vengeance comes from thinking we've been wronged. Vengeance comes from thinking that someone has done something that has really offended us and they've cost us something. And because they've cost us something, then we have to go extract that value out of their lives through some form of punishment or torture or whatever we think. And sure, people have done things that harm us because, as, as, as we know, there's the intents in the, in the heart are evil. Who can understand what our hearts want? Yes, we've all been harmed. Every single one of us in this room have been harmed in some way at the hands of some other human being who has done something to us and if we're looking at it purely as an us versus them, as a this versus that exchange, then yes, there's some kind of balance that needs to be extracted from the equation. But the ultimate actual truth is that while we have been wronged, the person who has truly been wronged in these exchanges is God. God is the one that is wronged when we offend one another. God is the one that is offended by our, our taking arms against one another and fighting against one another instead of having grace with one another. Because we are his children. He created us in his image, right? And even though we rebelled against, against him in the garden, we still bear his likeness. And he wants to redeem that image in all mankind. So his representatives are going out and building up offenses against one another. God is the one who has been wronged, which is why it should be God who gets vengeance. We don't have enemies. We have one enemy. Yes, there are people who are deceived. There are people who have embraced lies of different forms. There are there are people all around the earth who are, who are living in a morality that offends God and it offends our values. And we would believe, and I would believe, that they're offending our values because we believe our values line up with Scripture. And, and it can be easy to get offended when somebody does something that, that conflicts with our shared or our sacred values. But the truth is, people aren't living in rebellion against us. It feels that way. But we're living in rebellion against God, or people are living as God's enemies. Which is why the gospel is, again, so important. 
Paul says, that while we were God's enemies, Christ died for us. While we were at war with God, before we could do anything to deserve it or earn it, while we were at war with God, Jesus Christ came and died for us. He died in our place. There's only one enemy, and that's Satan. And he's a master manipulator, a master deceiver, a master liar. He is able to get us to go in all kinds of directions without us realizing we've gone down these roads. What's actually happening is that Satan, our enemy, our deceiver, is getting it. He's, he's led us to think that we're in war, we're at war with one another. He knows who, who the war is against. And he's accusing us and attacking us and manipulating us and getting us to fight against one another and in the process blame God for all of the evil that we see in the world even though the reason evil is in the world is because we've rebelled against God and we're evil. But the enemy wants us to, wants us to look at the evil and, and then blame one another for it. And then blame God for allowing such evil to exist. This is why we need redemption. This is why we, God's people, need to be people who believe in irrational grace. Who can look at a horrible offense that someone has done to us or done to the kingdom or done to the church or done to Jesus himself and be able to say, you're forgiven. We're going to have to wrap it up here. We'll get into the practical application on Tuesday evening. We're going to cover, we've got, I've got five life application, application principles to make, but I don't want to leave you completely hanging in the story that we started off the service with. So we're going to play the last couple of minutes of uh, the interview with Reverend Thompson from the church and we can he will hear the power of forgiveness and how forgiveness not only works in relationships, but it can actually change a community. Am I on? All right. I know you've, you've probably all seen, that was one of, the, one of the things that really, to me, was a testament or testimony about the power of forgiveness in the community. There have been so many, so many public battles in the last three, four years over the Confederate flag. And so many battles, people, people demanding they be taken down while people and are demanding they have the right to hang them up. And Charleston, South Carolina was no different. There, was, there were battles. There, there's a long-standing history of, of racism in that community and a war between, between races and those who thought differently. And this one act of forgiveness, he said, the flag just started coming down. Without anyone asking, without any big public appeals, without anyone saying, hey, we need to go do this. This is wrong. We shouldn't do this. Just that act of forgiveness, the flag started coming down. People were willing to start changing their own way of living in response to the forgiveness. 
I think that's a call for us as followers of Jesus Christ. When we forgive, when we show an irrational forgiveness to people in the world and we, we exemplify God's irrational grace in our lives to the lives of those around us, it doesn't just set us free, as the pastor said, but it also has the potential to transform everything because it's grace, God's grace, that really changes the way the world works. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would help us, your people, to be people of irrational grace. That when we're offended, when we're wounded, when we're hurt, when people have done things, irrational things, to hurt us in different ways, and, and it hurts, and it cuts us, and we're wounded, and we have trauma and we have scars, and we're changed because of it. And when our desire would be to get restitution, to get vengeance, and while even culture and society around us would say we're justified in that pursuit, I pray, Father, as hard as that may be, as impossible as it may seem for so many of us, that you would help us to be people of irrational grace, that we give grace to everyone before they could ever do anything to deserve it, just as you gave us your grace before we could do anything to deserve it or earn it. And I pray, Father, that you'd help us to be driven by the ultimate desire that you had for us from the beginning that we would not have this drive to use you for your stuff and to live a life that, that, that live, goes in accordance with your rules and regulations so that we can get you to bless us and receive what you have for us. But that we would ultimately be seeking you. We wouldn't be going after your stuff, that we'd be going after you, knowing you, having a deeper intimacy with you, a deeper relationship with you. We know that you're always here, that you're always waiting for us. You're always there. And we can be there with you if we choose. So I pray, Father, give us that desire, that passion for our lives, and that as we have this hunger and thirst for you in our life, that would be so changed, transformed, as we talked about last week, by being in your presence though we actually become more like you and it's in a world that's easily offended we find no offense we freely forgive because we have been freely forgiven in Jesus name